Welcome to the Chillinois Podcast. I needed someone Wait, to shut your mouth. Shut, shut, your, shut your mouth. I'm sorry? What did You're you just You're just coming say? off stupid. I'm coming off as stupid. You're wearing tuxedos to a job that requires you to clean bathrooms. Please leave this office. We're done with this interview. Do we get any sort of souvenir? Get out of my office! I want my trap back. I said I want my trap back. They say this episode was recorded on Saturday, August 22nd, around 3 p.m. I am Justine from Canna Queens. And I am Cole Preston from the Chillinois Podcast. Um, before we get into today's show, I've just got a small announcement to make. Um, doesn't look like it's out just yet, but Illinois News Joint, uh, IllinoisNewsJoint.com, just interviewed me about the Illinois podcast. So if you want to read my interview with the Illinois news joint, go to illinoisnewsjoint.com to check it out. Uh, today we are going to be joined by Dr. Eric Lee from Green Mind Physicians. Um, Green Mind Physicians is a telemedicine service offering medical cannabis certifications to people in Oklahoma, Michigan, Oregon, and Illinois. If you are interested in qualifying for the Illinois Medical Cannabis Program, um, some of the requirements, you have to be 18 years of age or older. You can be younger, but you'll need two physician recommendations as well as consent from the legal guardian. Uh, you need a recommendation from your physician for cannabis use. You must be an Illinois state resident with proof of residency. And... Um, You'll need a, a phone or electronic device for your telemedicine appointment. Yeah, that's a new thing, Justine. Uh, telemed telemedicine appointments, um, new thing for the Illinois Cannabis Program with uh, COVID and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I hope it stays around. It's been really convenient for people, and I really don't think there's any you know good reason to not have telemedicine for marijuana certification. Um, so hopefully yeah. they'll realize that it's been a good thing for patients and for the state. Definitely. Absolutely. It has to stay because our patients are immunocompromised. They've been immunocompromised, right, Justine? So Absolutely. Um, it, it's got to stay. So, Yeah. Um, but if you meet those qualifications, then you can reach out to Green Mind Physicians to get your card. You can find them at greenmindphysicians.com, or you can also follow their Instagram page, which is Green Mind Physicians. So, yeah. So today we're joined by Dr. Eric Lee uh, from Green Mind Physicians. Hey, Dr. Lee, thank you for setting aside time to return to the Chillinois podcast. Oh, I'm happy to. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. yeah. So how are we doing today? It's a beautiful Saturday. It is. It's a beautiful Saturday. It is really beautiful outside, too. Um, it's, it's just great. It's a great day. Um, so the place been, uh, that I am in specifically is... Maybe slightly too crowded, but besides that, I'm doing great. <laughs> Good to hear. Good to hear. So have you been uh, more busy with telemedicine um, compared to, you know, how you guys, I think the last time we had you on, I don't just, I don't know if you were on that episode, but I think the last time we had you on, it was before this whole thing called a pandemic happened. And so, yeah, it was um, definitely towards the beginning and it didn't feel like the way it feels now. Um, yeah. but marijuana in general and our business specifically have been just fine during the pandemic. Um, I think most of my states have released some data about how well the industry has been doing since the pandemic started and we're, we're chugging along. I, I've kind of refused to spend any money on advertising. So it's mostly been like Reddit stuff. Um, yeah. but even with just this like 
grassroots level of advertising. I've, I've had plenty of patience. I've, I've had a great time so far. Awesome. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I, with working across the United States with different states in the cannabis industry, um, I've heard nothing but reports of like, no, we're too busy right now. Like we are, we are making money hand over fist and this is insane for a pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, it, there's, there's concerns too. Cause like, you know, so it is so booming that uh, we just to plug a former podcast, we, we have, you know, bud tenders in the state that are super concerned about their safety and with the pandemic going on and the fact that medical cannabis is in higher demand than ever, not just medical cannabis, but adult use cannabis. Um, and uh, so there's some concerns. So we've seen adjustments with curbside pickup. We've got your adjustments with telemedicine. Let's hope both of those measures stay because my point that I've been trying to drill home on these podcasts is that these patients, the patients that are immunocompromised were immunocompromised, will be immunocompromised and are probably not going to lose that conditions so True. you know what i mean these things need to stay they're beneficial for those types of people yeah and unfortunately it doesn't seem like there's any easy end to all of this um i think i've been living in a fantasy world where sometime in 2021 we may have a vaccine that may work but i'm here with two colleagues and they have set me straight that probably probably be longer than that so i i, I just don't see an end in sight that's depressing. Well, that's a that that's all the more reason to get medical cannabis. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, all joking aside, um, we brought you on today to talk about you know the use of medical cannabis, and there's a a um, I am drawing a blank. There is a disease called IBD IBS. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know a predisposition if you will Uh, people that have it know about it it's unpleasant (laughs) to say the least um you know let's talk let's just jump right in doc and talk about um, ibd and how cannabis can be used to treat it definitely um well just to give you like an idea of how i kind of approach the body of literature we have in front of us at this exact moment because you know it's not super robust i'm sure you you could assume that. I mean, we're talking about a substance that's still legal in the United States, so it's it's difficult to find the type of research we like that really moves the needle for any doctor to practice. Um, right. You know, it's one thing to have some evidence that makes it seem like um, it's beneficial for patients, but it's another thing to get up to the threshold where it changes the way that a physician is going to practice medicine. Um, so for most qualifying conditions, for every qualifying condition, really. Um, The question is, is there data that shows that patients are using marijuana and benefiting from it? And is there granular data that shows that either, you know, full flower THC or CBD alone is effective for this condition? Um, So for most of the qualifying conditions, I can point to some type of data and say, yes, you know, it looks like full flower has an appreciable effect, or it looks like CBD has an appreciable effect. Um, I think data on THC specifically is a little harder to find because isolated THC is a little unusual. You know, you only really find it in an edible. Um, well, and so, did you say that 
I don't mean to cut you off here. I was just thinking, sure. would you say that the fact that it is a schedule one drug also makes it hard to find? It, uh, it makes it basically impossible because the type of research that we really need, like randomized controlled studies, it needs a lot of not just money, but coordination. And that's just not going to happen with these different attitudes between providers. Um, it really just needs to be legalized so we can mobilize this gigantic research system that our country does have. Yeah, um, that's what I love about the folks that oppose it. They're like, there's not enough research on it. And it's like, well, you won't let us do it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure. I know all the reasons why there are so many opponents, but it's it's definitely not being accomplished yet. Yeah. Anyways, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Dr. That's Lee. all good. Like that was an important point. I, I mean, it's definitely true. Um, so IBD specifically, inflammatory bowel disease, um, which is a little different from IBS, but pretty similar in terms of how it makes you feel. Um, we do have data that suggests that plenty of people smoke marijuana specifically for this illness. So that's big takeaway number one. Um, and we do have data that whole flour and CBD appear to be effective for it. Um, whether I can make any specific, you know, dosing requirements or anything like that, we're not there yet, but that's, that's kind of where we are. It's not, you know, it's not a slam dunk yet. And I don't think it should move the needle for clinicians, but at this point, if I can, you know, get the word out that this is a normalized thing that patients around the world have used for years, um, hopefully decision makers will appreciate it. And if the voice comes from a doctor, it's it it makes it a little more accessible for other people in the medical community for sure yeah absolutely and i loved um so reading through it's not your your latest blog post it it was mm -hmm. at the time when we scheduled this but um one of the takeaways that you had where you kind of interpreted the data in a study so that you know people who are not in the medical field like us can understand mm -hmm. it. Um, you said you can't decide or you can't design a study with a placebo for marijuana because research subjects <laughs> get high when they smoke weed and that shit slaps. So we, <laughs> I loved it. I was like, yeah, that's that's pretty true. It's hard to, you know, yeah, do a study because it's just it's too powerful. It treats too many things almost. <laughs> Yeah, and even people who haven't smoked before, I mean, they can tell if you're giving them marijuana versus, you know, an herb cigarette, like, it gets you high. Absolutely, um, yeah. I'm going to come up with, like, a list of the 10 funniest things I've read in scientific literature, because I just love when the, uh, I love when the, like, the banal things that we all know as marijuana users kind of creep into medical literature. It's just the funniest juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah. I would be interested to see, though, when we move forward, you know, they've got capsules now at the dispensary that look like aspirin. I mean, if you weren't if you weren't careful, if you, you left them outside of the mm -hmm. bottle, you know, somebody could take take them thinking it was an aspirin and it's it's a THC pill. So I wonder if as we progress into this new era of cannabis that, uh, you know, if we could perform like a controlled um, experiment experiment on it. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we really need to do. Um, I think it's good because we can point to a lot of different things. Like if you read my articles, there's research coming from Israel and South Africa and 
the Netherlands, but what we really like is American research performed on an American population. Um, so that's that's what's going to change, you know, most physicians' opinions. I mean, you don't have to convince me. I'm already a proponent. Um, but we, we need domestic research because, for better or for worse, the way that Americans get health care from American doctors is different from the way other people get health care around the world. Um, so it, it just goes back to it, uh, what, what we need more of. Um, yeah. And I, I do do my best to make sure that there are, you know, that I'm halfway in between, you know, there's, there's a whole, there's infinite reasons to make research more accessible to people. And I, I think uh, being a younger physician, it's very motivating for me to get that out there in a way that people can actually read. Right. I mean, more, more, if more studies happen, you can make your case either way. I mean, really, that's the thing. I don't know why people oppose research. It's almost as if they're afraid to see what it, what comes out of it. Um, yeah. so just, so, just so people know, we're uh, talking about um, the Green Mind Physicians blog post on IBD. So if you go to greenmindphysicians.com slash blog, um, he's got a good selection of blog posts, all very informative. But right now we're talking about um, his evidence review on inflammatory bowel disease. And um, Dr. Lee, I found um, your fantasy research scenario for IBD to be very interesting. Do you mind talking about that? Um, I, just I love, mean, I'm your way with words. I and I, <laughs> I want to. I almost want to like hear it, hear it read out loud. It's like the audio audio blog. You know how there's audio books. I want to hear like the audio blog version of the fantasy <laughs> research scenario. <laughs> Seriously, it just depends on my, you know, the mood I'm in when I'm writing it. Sometimes it's just so irre- irreverent, and sometimes I like really want to be detailed about the facts. Um, but I just trying to break it down into, you know, what it actually takes to get to the point where we have enough data to, to move the needle. Um, and I think what I want to talk about later in this podcast is um, this kind of notion that somehow marijuana is a treatment for COVID. I'm sure you have seen some things on Reddit. I definitely have. Um, and Wait, talk about not, like how that has more what we are discussing. Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Derek, Dr. Eric, I was talking over you. I was saying, wait a minute. It's, it's not a cannabis. Isn't a cure for COVID. <laughs> I've it increased my dosage just because I was told. Yeah. It's just because <laughs> you're not taking enough. <laughs> yeah, no, that's we'll what, definitely. Yeah. Ahead, that's Justin. something that, uh, I had kind of told my coworkers back when I was in the actual, like, physical office and a medical office, I was like, oh, I'm not too worried about it. I'll still wear my mask and everything, but I think I smoke enough cannabis that it's not going to affect me. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's get right into that, Dr. Eric. We'll get back to the blog here in a second. And if, if oh, folks, sure. you're listening, well, if you're folks, you're listening and you want to check out the blog, like I say, greenmindphysicians.com slash blog. Yeah. Let's talk about COVID and cannabis. COVID's on everybody's mind. We'll get sure. back to, to that stuff here in a second. Tell sure. us about what you've seen and what, what you think. Okay. Uh, just to wind up the last one, specifically IBD, it's not like a super common thing that I you know deal with with patients. Um, I did have a specific patient that had some questions, and it gives me a chance to learn a bunch of stuff and make a blog post. That's why that one came up. In the future, I'd want like more accessible things, you know, depression, anxiety, ADD, things that are you know a little more uh, frequently sought after. 
Um, but that was for kind of a specific patient that I did uh, mention that I would do something for. And it took me a while, but it, it got up there. Um, and now... Yeah. And you cited the whole thing. And that's what I love about it. Uh, always cited. It's what makes me different from the next guy. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. Now, the okay. So... I mean, you, you basically hit it on the head. I mean, anytime that I see anything marijuana related that makes it to the front page, um, it's just like automatically gives me a good feeling and like makes me clap my hands with delight. But being this doctor in the space right now, I feel like it is my job to like dive into this. Um, I really do feel like what we have taken away as a community from the research that um, shows that CBD might be an effective treatment for COVID. Um, it just kind of illustrates a lot of the ways that things take off in marijuana. Um, not for good or for bad, but just when we deal with anything that has a limited body of evidence, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the science that is the predominant factor. Um, for whatever reason, marijuana is kind of susceptible to pseudoscience, but at the same time, like what we were saying earlier, marijuana is like at the height of its powers. It's a COVID-proof industry. It's popular. It's relevant. And it's only becoming more so. Um, so today, what I'm specifically talking about is this like vague notion that marijuana somehow decreases inflammation, um, which should theoretically help treat COVID. Um, the, I would say to like wrap this up in a short sentence. I would say that the basis for making this claim is actually pretty sound, but what the what we have taken away from it is maybe not as sound. Um, that that is that's that's my big takeaway. Um, and I'm slightly worried that this is just going to evolve into like me talking for like 15 minutes straight. So definitely interrupt me if you want a clarification. <laughs> no, no, I like where you're heading here. I definitely like where you're heading. Okay. Um, Cool. So the theory is inflammation. If since cannabis cuts down on inflam, there's claims that cannabis cuts down on inflammation. That sure. they're drawing it's, the conclusion that yeah, I think there's more than claims at this point. I think you can pretty much say that at least CBD definitely decreases inflammation in a meaningful way. Um, yeah. Now the whole reason this is even becoming relevant is because if you look at what people are treating COVID with right now or exploring um, in the medical community to treat COVID, there's really two big classes of agents. There's antiviral agents um, like remdesivir, which you may have recalled from the news. Gilead produced it. It cost, it cost $5,080 for a treatment course, which is insane. Um, but it is, it is, it is one, of the, one of the strategies antiviral. And the other one is anti-inflammatory. Um, the medication that's kind of taken over scientific view is tocilizumab, um, which costs $8,400 per course. So, I mean, just from that, you know, there's some very real barriers to treatment, which is the cost, um, because we live in America and the way the thing, things are the way they are. But that's a whole nother discussion. Um, just a fun fact, if you look at these names, remdesivir ends with an IR. Um, right. And that means inhibits reduction. And tocilizumab ends with an AB, and that means antibody, which is the way that these drugs work. What um, about hydro hydroxychloroquine? <laughs> hydroxychloroquine is its own thing. Um, Isn't it for and, malaria? 
It is an anti-malarial and we use it for some connective tissue diseases and I definitely want to touch on that one too. For sure. Um, so we have these like two strategies for dealing with COVID. One is... Hey, Dr. Lee. Yeah, I go for it. I don't know if it's your mic, but there's like popping and scratching. Uh, it's probably because I'm shuffling with notes in front of me. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I just wanted to point out, I thought it was Justine for a second. And I was watching her audio levels and I was watching <laughs> your, yeah, I was like, Justine, come on. Um, no, but, it's uh, okay. No, sorry about that. I just wanted to point out your mic is picking it up. <laughs> anyway, thanks for you were talking me. about, uh, Ill, I'm going to butcher the name, Ilmazrafir. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> Some really long word. Yeah. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, what you can take away is that going after the virus or going after the inflammation, either way, looks like it kind of works. Um, which brings us to the relationship with CBD. Like when you talk about inflammation, it kind of maybe seems like this vague concept that happens with most diseases, and it kind of is. But at this point, we can actually measure inflammation by going into the blood and looking at specific markers. So if you're in a state of inflammation, we can look at your blood and you know parse out these specific molecules um, that kind of tell us how much inflammation that you're having. Um, this is kind of good for a research purpose because it lets us say, you know, we're giving you CBD. Do you have less inflammation? Do you have more inflammation? Um, specifically, what we look at are these things called inflammation markers. IL-1 is a very common one, and IL-6 in COVID is specifically, it appears to be pretty important. IL means interleukin. It's just a type of molecule. Um, and it's part of the inflammation cascade, which has dozens of molecules, like many, many. Um, so what we've found out is if we take interleukin-6, IL-6, out of the picture, COVID patients get better. Um, big picture-wise, this kind of means that if you can manage inflammation, you know, you can manage COVID. Um, this medication, I already mentioned, the big issue with it is that it's expensive. Um, yeah. but another issue is that it causes a ton of side effects. Um, if you go after IL-6 with tocilizumab, the way we go after it is that we go after its receptor. Um, in order for IL-6 to cause inflammation, it has to touch a cell and it touches a cell on a special receptor. So we're going in with tocilizumab and we're like shutting this receptor down. So your body's basically saying, oh, no IL-6, no inflammation. I'm doing great. Um, so we kind of trick the body in this way. Um, but doing this, obviously, I'm just, uh, not obviously, but doing this causes other side effects because receptors are everywhere. You're not just going to have this receptor in this like perfect spot to shut down COVID without causing some side effects. Yeah. Um, so if you shut down this IL-6 receptor for whatever reason, you can have some pretty serious side effects. Um, with IL with uh, tocilizumab and IL-6 specifically, you can have um, some serious infections. Um, and one of the things they noticed when they researched it was that you can have reactivation of viruses that have been latent in your body. You can also have your pancreas shut down or your triglycerides increase to a really unsafe level. Um, so overall, this medication works 
but it has a lot of issues. So it comes down to like a, a risk versus benefit type of thing when you're definitely trying to decide and whether or not to treat somebody with that, right? Definitely. I didn't definitely. Google it. I didn't Google it. I totally remember this. That's remdesivir, right? That, that was tokilizumab. Remdesivir. Oh. It's, it's very it's very silly, and these names are like long, and they're not easy for anyone to remember, um, let alone people that don't deal with it. So, yeah, um, tokilizumab. 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 Forgive right. him; he is not familiar with the medical industry at all. <laughs> it's okay. Hey, I'm just trying to just trying to make sure people. I'm here for all home. of this. I'm here for all <laughs> this, and to like break it down and break it down like eighteen hundred times until we all understand it. <laughs> Anyways, for sure. So we are here and we know that shutting down inflammation kind of makes COVID go away. Um, and that's how we've gotten interested in CBD, because over the years, we have found that CBD has, have, does have a appreciable effect on these inflammation markers that I talked about. Like You can give CBD to a person and you know, find out that these markers go down. So there's there's some evidence that CBD really makes sense for this. Um, just to touch base on some of these other treatments, I know you said hydroxychloroquine, which is very controversial, but should not be because there right. have been negative randomized control trials. That means that we did the research in the right way. Um, I would like to note that this is American research done at an American hospital. And it still said hydroxychloroquine didn't work. Not only did it say it didn't work, it said it caused cardiac events. Um, so from my point of view, it's, it's basically slam dunk. You know, we don't use hydroxychloroquine. The other one that you may have heard a lot about is azithromycin, which you usually hear about in conjunction with hydroxychloroquine. Um, it's the same thing as a Z-Pack. You've probably taken it before. I've definitely taken it before. Um, it's a common antibiotic. Um, there is also no data that this is an effective treatment for coronavirus. Um, and the research that we do have on that was also done in American Hospital. So those two medications, which you probably hear the most about, there's there's really no good science saying that they treat corona. Um, huh. That's weird. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm just I'm just joking. Uh, I was about to make a stupid joke about you know somebody saying something that doesn't that science doesn't support, but we'll, yeah. we won't get into that. Um, it's, anyways, it's, it's always the money. You know he's got a monetary stake in it, and it's always the money when it comes to drug development. Yeah. All right. So there's a really long introduction to say that CBD might make sense for treating corona. Um, so it's very exciting to think about it in this way. Now, all, all of these murmurings about marijuana and CBD treating coronavirus, all of them, they all stem from one paper, one paper that was published in late April, and it is not one of the quote-unquote good ones. It's not a randomized controlled trial where we have a placebo and a bunch of math nerds and a bunch of stuff like that. It's not. It's not anything conclusive at all. It is a literature review that was published in uh, China in late April that gives a mechanistic pathway for why CBD might work. So it's basically saying CBD has been shown to reduce inflammation, kind of like we discussed. Um, it is saying that CBD has shown been shown to change the way that mouse lungs react. Um, 
and it has shown some other preclinical evidence. So no hard evidence in humans, just basically a summary saying CBD might work and that we should really think about it. Um, at the current time, there's actually no effort to explore CBD as a treatment, um, and there is no plan to explore it. I, I find it very difficult to envision a future where there's some kind of domestic research in the States. If there is an article, something on CBD that gets produced, it'll probably come from another country. Um, but to be very clear, we have a paper that basically gives a framework for why CBD might work as a treatment. Um, but what I hear from patients and from people is not that. It's, it's basically, you know, marijuana treats COVID. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's basically what the gist of what I've, what I've heard. Um, yeah. and you know, yeah, yeah. I, I was joking earlier when we said we, we believed it. I mean, basically the, <clears throat> yeah, that we kind of got the gist that that's mm -hmm. not exactly what the article was saying. <laughs> yeah. But if you're going to like summarize it and like what you see in the community, probably just people saying that marijuana is good for you. Um, and I'm not trying to like slam that or anything. I think there's some very real reasons why people are turning towards cannabis right now that mostly have to do with mental health. Um, yeah. So I'm not like trying to drop the bomb on marijuana usage right now, but I think this is a really good illustration of, you know, potential. There's potential in the world, um, but we as marijuana using people have not stayed within the facts. You know, if you're going around saying, um, smoking marijuana and thinking that it, it treats COVID or prevents you from getting it, you are, you are engaging in the pseudoscience, which is okay because it happens a lot in marijuana, frankly. Um, but it's a good, it's a good illustration of what tends to happen with marijuana research. Yeah. Well, just to plug our last podcast, we talked about pseudoscience leaking into cannabis and, and the idea that like, why are we calling strains strains and the idea that, okay of course it's a plant but there's a lot of variance between each time you get a certain product and that doesn't hold true when you think about a true pharmaceutical environment like it's not like i go let's say i've got a pain you know prescription for pain medication it's not like i go one time and it's great stuff and it, and it works really well and then i go the next time and it's not the same stuff you know what i mean like mm -hmm. it, that just doesn't exist in other medical environments mm -hmm. uh, unless you have any examples you know, that I'm not thinking about where there's like a huge variance in product like you see in the cannabis industry. You know what I mean? It's not like, you, I guess the analogy, the simple analogy I give um, is that it's not like you can go back, like let you like Coca, let's say you like Coca-Cola. Well, you can mm. always guarantee that you can go to a store and get Coca-Cola and it's basically always going to be this, the same thing. There's like a very low variance in in that formula. I know we're not talking about medicine now, but mm. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. it, it's just weird what you see in this industry, the variants. And maybe it has to do with plant variants. That's what people always bring up. But um, we talked about, like like I said, just to wrap up my plug of our last podcast, we talked mm -hmm. about a company in the Netherlands called Bedrocan, which are standard, standardizing medical cannabis varieties. And it kind of goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, which is that this if they can standardize it so that it's the same year batch in batch out year in year out, as they say, um, we can start to have a standardized mm. dose potentially, mm. which would enable physicians like you to 
I mean, you were just talking about at the beginning of this podcast, like I said, you know, you can recommend somebody to use CBD and you can recommend them starting points, mm-hmm. but dosages for CBD are all over the board. Am I correct? You know? Yeah, definitely. Well, just to respond to that, I think that's definitely true. Um, overwhelmingly, what we know, we know that there's like a crap load of chemicals in marijuana, but overwhelmingly, we know the most information about THC and CBD. Um, there's no question about that. And it does kind of seem that there's a role for these other things that we don't really know yet. Um, but it does, it, it, there is evidence that CBD and THC are kind of the big dogs. Um, and that, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. I, I'm sorry, but like it just, that uh, highlights your point again, that there is a lot of pseudoscience in this industry. If, if the most research we have is for THC and CBD. I mean, there's like over a hundred, I think 20 known cannabinoids. Mm-hmm. So I mean, and these some of these cultivators are making pretty bold claims about what some of these products they do. are, and it really should not be super duper legal. I mean, like fast forward thirty years and like think about what cannabis is going to look like. Like we are going to have Surgeon General warnings and like anti smoking stuff and all kinds of shit. Like it's unavoidable. Um, but like right now, making claims about linoleum, terbutaline, whatever kind of cannabinoid you want, it's I think it's okay because I do think it's coming from a good place, like trying to share your experience. I think it's okay. I don't think it's backed by science. See, I don't think it's okay. I think it comes off as like exacty, sciencey, salesy. But yeah. but I don't mean to like get into that so much. You yeah. know what I mean? It's a um, it's a whole thing in and of itself for sure. Um. Now, the CBD, actually, this does bring me to another point, which is that we do research CBD quite often. Um, you know, all this whole list of drugs that I kind of just mentioned, um, they all have something in common, which is that they've been used for something else. So when we think of a perfect drug for, a perfect, for, a, for an issue, like for COVID, we want a drug that works and that's safe. Um, we don't know any of these work yet because COVID's a new issue. So we're, we're learning that and we can say a few things. Um, but as far as whether it's safe or not, um, these drugs have a step up because they've been used in the past for other things. Um, one of the nice things that we do know about CBD is that it is by and large very, very safe. Um, I, I can say that very large amounts of CBD tend to be well tolerated in people. Um, even up to like 1500 milligrams a day, it's, it's not something that has been shown to have significant side effects over time. Um, I do think something kind of interesting is that when you look at research that relates to marijuana and the dosages that they're giving patients, what they're giving people in these studies is usually a lot more than you can buy in a store. Like they want you to take like 500 milligrams a day. Well, where I live, that's like, over a hundred bucks, you know, it's not cheap. So it's still mismatched. So the research that we do have is, it's still kind of a mismatch. Um, CBD particularly benefits from the fact that it has been pretty exhaustively researched for uh, seizures. Um, So it has gone through this long process of, is this safe? Can we give it to patients? And the answer that we have discovered is yes. Um, because it is routinely given to pediatric patients, certain pediatric patients, for seizures. But I think um, a good takeaway from all of this is while you're waiting for your COVID test, while you have your symptoms, don't just run down to your local gas station and buy whatever CBD they've got on the counter. Like, 
you should probably follow your doctor's recommendations. Yeah. And doc, do you have any recommendations on that with that in mind? Like, uh, you know, we always recommend people to record, you know, make sure that there's a COA or a certificate of authenticity included with the purchase of their CBD so that they can see the test results and make sure that it's I, clean. And I have a lot of feelings towards this. Um, it has to do with the fact that CBD still isn't federally labeled as a pharmaceutical. It's still marketed and reg- like uh, legally looked at as a botanical product, so you don't have to, like, match what it is um like what's on the label doesn't necessarily have to be quantified in a certain way unless you get it at a dispensary as soon as you're buying cbd from a dispensary the rules all change just because marijuana is a highly regulated industry um and in all of the states that we certify in you have to have third-party laboratory verification of your product so if a patient's ever interested in cbd i personally feel like the only reputable place to get it right now is through dispensary um, I mean, you want to assume that online retailers and kind of over-the-counter CBD is safe and that people have good intentions, but the science that we have shows otherwise. Um, yeah. In this study that I talked to you about, about seizures, one of the first things they did was to quantify the amount of CBD in over-the-counter products. And it's highly variable, like something like 20 to 80% of what it says on the label. Um, it's really not, it's not something that, I would feel comfortable telling patients to do. Um, and I honestly don't really feel like a lot of physicians are you know, familiar with this either. Um, so there's just a lack of information on both sides of the needle. And I, if I can help a few people, that's, that's what I'm here to do. Understood. Understood. Um, so let's talk about, I just, you know, Justine and I, we're thinking about having children. Oh! No, no, I, I, no. Let me <laughs> not at all. <laughs> we're thinking about having children and we think that we're definitely not going to have children. <laughs> we were thinking just, about it and we landed on a no. Yeah, we landed on a definite no, but let's talk a little bit about pediatric intoxication. Cause I said earlier uh, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the, some of these pills now, they look indistinguishable, um, some of them even look like candy, you know, if you get an edible, what, mm-hmm. what happens, you know, what happens when a child, let's talk about that. You know, let's talk about what happens maybe when a child accidentally takes cannabis sure. and it's a sure. scary situation, you know, and I think some of our users do have, or listeners uh, do have kids. So, yeah, this is a really good thing to cover because it has a fairly simple solution. And what I tell you will probably be very like reassuring, like it won't make you more scared, um, which is always something good to hear from a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Um, I posted something on our website about pediatric intoxication because it is something that is happening. Um, it happens, and as states stay legalized or liberalize their pro- policies, like going from medical to recreational, it happens more. Um, so we know it, that it's happening. We know that it's happening more, and we have enough information to say, you know, plenty of things about pediatric intoxication. Um, I myself have dealt with this issue in the ER many times. Uh, not often is it a like parent saw your kid, you know, eat a certain amount. It's never discreet like that. It's usually I think my kid has eaten a marijuana edible, and I don't yeah. know for sure. 
Um, that's, that's mostly what I encounter. Um, when a patient comes into me in the ER with a suspected marijuana ingestion, um, the treatment is observation, which is like from a patient perspective, like it doesn't ever feel great. You know, you come into the ER, you expect a lot of stuff and your doctor wants to observe you. It's not a trick. You know, it's not a misnomer. I'm literally just observing you. Um, you get placed in a dark room. We measure your vital signs a few times an hour. Um, and with smaller patients who we know have more serious intoxications, we we try to be a little more vigilant about it. But the basis of treating is just to make sure that you don't get worse. Um, I think it's important to go, you know, the number one reason to go to the ER is if you're worried. You know, no, no amount of counseling is going to prevent you from, you know, having that primal instinct and you really shouldn't ignore it. Um, so if you need to go, you go. But when we deal with pediatric intoxications, the part I want to stress is that you have a shot of being able to manage this at home with good support. Um, and the key to this is making sure that you're prepared to call poison control. Uh, any suspected intoxication, you should make sure to get a hold of your local poison control. If you have your kiddo's weight and what you suspect they took, that is exactly what they need. And they'll check in with you over the course of a few hours, basically accomplish what happens in the emergency department, um, but without the crazy expense of going to the emergency department. Um, the data that we do have from poison control shows that about 70% of kids don't ever need any further treatment. They're managed from home appropriately, uh, just with support from the poison control hotline. Gotcha. And uh, I was just looking, this is another topic that I'm seeing off of your uh, blog. Um, and I just noticed you've got a parent's guide on there. So again, guys, if you go to mm -hmm. physicians.com uh, slash you can see uh, the uh, his posting on pediatric intoxication treatment and prevention. Um, mm -hmm. It's a great post. It's got all the citations, just like always, nerd alert, uh, Dr. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but at the bottom of that blog post, you got a parent's guide. So for those parents out there, I mean, it's better to be safe than sorry. So mm -hmm. lock that stuff up in a, in a separate box, you know, keep it yep. away from your children. But at the end of the day, it's again, it's better to be prepared than not mm -hmm. prepared. So if you go to greenmindphysicians.com slash blog, they've got their parents guide at the bottom of the uh, pediatric intoxication treatment and prevention blog post. So definitely um, go there, download it. I mean, I think there's a lot of issues out there in general, in life, in medicine. But one of them is definitely when to go to the ER and when not to go to the ER. And it just seems so mystifying sometimes. Um, yeah. But if I can spare a few people a trip, I think that is a good thing that I'm doing for the world. Hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Yeah, and so, I think one of the like more mystifying parts about it, at least for myself as someone who doesn't have health insurance, is, hmm, is it worth the bill? <laughs> Do I really want to pay that much money just to find out that I'm fine? Or is this something that I know for sure I can't just sit around and wait out? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really tough thing that we have to deal with often. And I mean, I wish I had a better answer, but it's the whole cost situation is really mystifying for physicians, too. And it never feels good to be able to say that 
to have to say that to someone, but it's it's not something that I really understand or, I mean, even have a way to understand what the final cost to the person is. Yeah, healthcare is a beast for sure. Um, Dr. Lee, uh, you wanted to talk about what you guys were doing with regard to scholarships. Oh, definitely. Um, and hey, if I just put you on the spot, I can't remember if you said something on the on the. <laughs> no, I feel obligated to talk about this because I have mentioned it a few times, um, okay. and I do really want something terrible to emerge from all of this. But um, what I conceived for my scholarship was kind of a way to uh, get low income and black resident black applicants to medical school some support. Um, so like some financial support and making sure that they have mentorship because it's a, it's definite disparity between applicants. Um, what I have learned is that a lot of this work is kind of already being done by the uh, by AAMC, which is a group that administers the MCAT and does all the other stuff. Um, so I'm thinking of pivoting it, and it's kind of hard to tell what's going to happen yet. So I would like to say more, but at this point, the only thing I can say is that I've made a nonprofit. And I have money set aside. And do you know how much it takes to make a nonprofit? Oh my God, it feels like a punishment. Like I, I filed this that. thing, and I, I I do this all myself. Um, but I filed this thing like last week to to start this nonprofit. File a five hundred three C, and it costs seven hundred and fifty dollars just to open it. It just feels like a punishment, you know? <laughs> right, just to not profit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like to do this good thing i have to pay almost a thousand dollars just to register it yeah well good on you and you know just for people that are interested i i'm i'm assuming they can just you know stay tuned to your blog and maybe we'll see more information in the future yeah i i really need to get together and and make something happen because i mean people are hurting now and i want to contribute yeah well that's what i love about you dr lee just really quick uh, let's talk about again what you do. Um, you are part of a telemedicine service offering medical cannabis certifications to people in Oklahoma, Michigan, Oregon, and Illinois. Um, I love that, that you've got compassion um, and that you are willing to, you know, work your schedule around to get people in. Um, just a few questions I have for you, um, softball ones for you. Um, what do your patients do if they can't get their records for you? Um, like if they don't have direct. Oh records? yeah, definitely. Um, this has been an eternal debate and a legal debate and um, it never feels like it has a perfect answer because what do medical records really mean? It means that another doctor at some point in your life has diagnosed you with a qualifying condition. Um, to me, it's not the most compelling thing in the world. When I, when I think about whether or not I want to give a patient access to marijuana, the fact that they have been diagnosed or not diagnosed, while it is a firm requirement on paper, I just do not view it as a pragmatic thing. Like, if a patient is coming to me and they're saying marijuana has helped me live a better life, I would like access to marijuana in order to do this. I, I would like to do my best to make it happen. So we offer, you know, the ability, if you have a physician, the ability for us to get your records for you, um, which is always easier because a doctor's office always responds to another doctor quicker than it does to their own patients. Yeah. Often. Just fill out a HIPAA release. And yes, you have a HIPAA release. Um, and what we also have is affidavit saying you haven't been to a physician in 12 months, 
which is, you know, last resort, but with COVID being the way it is, um, has not been used infrequently. Gotcha. So, yep. um, so even if you don't have access, um, we can make it work. We can come together and get a plan to get your records. There's, there's all kinds of things we can do. And from what I've heard, you know, not only are you willing to get people in and make it a quick process, about 15 minutes, but when do people actually get their card, card generally speaking, in Illinois? What's the turnaround looking like? Well, Illinois, out of my four states, Illinois is the best one in terms of getting your card to you. Because Woo! Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Even throughout the pandemic, um, the time really hasn't changed. So if you turn in your um, application, you usually get it on the next business day. Um, and it comes to you via email first. Um, and eventually through snail mail, it takes about three or four weeks. You'll get a card for your wallet. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So just, just uh, people that are looking to get their medical cannabis card, if you reach out to Green Mind Physicians, it's greenmindphysicians.com. Uh, they're doing telemedicine at, uh, impo- Sorry, appointments right now. I'm having trouble speaking, which is really <laughs> awesome. So COVID-19 has legalized telemedicine as a way to certify patients um, in the states that Green Mind Physicians serve. Um, So you can check out their blog on more info on that as well. Um, Yeah. It's pretty cool stuff, though, that that that's able to, those accommodations are able to be made. Yeah. It's been really fun. And like, like we're, we've been saying this whole time, it's, it makes perfect sense for marijuana. Absolutely. And I know that some people are going to be, um, you know, a little bit sketched out because it is a 15 minute appointment via mm. telemedicine. So let's drive home this point. How legit is it? <laughs> well, I mean, the proof is in the pudding and we've definitely certified hundreds of patients. I wish I had kept better count of it over the years, but I'm cranking on number 2000. Um, and it's probably going to be sometime this month. I don't know who exactly it's going to be, but I've certified a ton of patients. Um, yeah. And I've seen, I know, I know, uh, members of our community that have certified through you. So I can, it it just seems too convenient right now. I think we're all in this place where we expect healthcare to be a whole hassle and to not be able to do it efficiently or conveniently. Um, but not just with marijuana, like my, my peers in related fields have started doing more digital appointments and specifically for things that don't require a physical exam, like medical marijuana, or one of the things that I'm also interested in is, you know, prophylactic, uh, antivirals for gay guys prep, um, which I also feel is perfect for telemedicine because it does not require an examination. Um, so when we're dealing with something that has an ambulatory or healthy patient, I think telemedicine is really appropriate. Yeah. And it just is going to take, you know, a while for people to realize that it's a viable option. Um, it's just too convenient. People, people don't think it's legit yet. Yeah. You've definitely really streamlined the process, which I think is amazing because when it comes to medical cannabis, access is the, the biggest boulder I would say is just getting that access to somebody who will actually talk to you that can certify you that understands how it works, that can Mm -hmm. give you some pointers. So that's awesome. And then I, I also wanted to go back um, because you said that the whole 
idea of writing the blog about the inflammatory bowel disease, it all started because you did some independent research on behalf of one of your patients. And I just wanted to say like, that's awesome that you take your own independent research and decide to turn it into general information for anybody out there who's interested. And you're kind of like, well, here's what I learned. So let me pass this on to you. And I think that's awesome. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, and my goal is to make it accessible for patients and for providers too, um, just because I think there needs to be more information for everyone. Hell yeah. So you um, certify in Michigan. We'll have to get you connected with a podcast that we do in Michigan. We just recently did a podcast with the My Canacast. Um, cool. It's a cannabis podcast out of Michigan. Really legit guys, really cool guys. So I'm sure they'd yeah. love to have you on. I'll, I'll pitch the idea to them and get you guys sure. connected. Um, yeah. So we're getting to the top of the hour, Dr. Lee. I wanted to check with you. I know you're a busy guy. You're going to have to head out here at four. If not, I had a question for you as we do what we call a spark up to uh, close out the show. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah. uh, So, uh, you know, again, we're, I feel like this is uh, relevant because we are sparking up. I mean, I've got a lighter here. We're going to, we're smoking weed. And uh, I saw you had a blog post that said mm-hmm. smoke weed every day. No, it said smoke less weed. You know, <laughs> and I didn't know if you could because I think that's important. Do you mind talking sure. about your perspective on that? It is something that we all must confront. You know, I am a lifelong cannabis enthusiast. I've smoked many a joint, and I know that it is basically the best thing ever. And if you've been certified by me you know that i basically said this exact same thing but it is something that we all have to think about giving our lungs a break because there is enough science to say for sure that smoking weed is indeed bad Uh, i'm sure it's not a surprise and you know if you really look at it what a marijuana smoker exposes himself to compared to tobacco smoker it's volume wise a lot less um so there's reasons to not be as terrified as tobacco smoke, but in general, it's something that everyone should think about. I think this is a good thing because it actually reminds me of something else I wanted to make a point about, which is that we have enough data to say that vape smokers get COVID at five to seven times more like higher chance than uh, non-smokers. Um, so this time in which there is a pandemic and which there is a pandemic that shuts down your respiratory system, it is a good time to reevaluate all of your habits. And I, I say this as a former daily smoker, and, you know, I still smoke and vape from time to time, but it is something that we should all have a goal of, of gradually reducing our smoke exposure. And unfortunately, there is no way around it. We should all think about this. And as a community, we should all think about this. We, we are very close. We're very close to falling off the cliff where big marijuana is very similar to big tobacco. You know, when I try to push this kind of thinking at dispensaries or retailers, I get a lot of pushback. But it is not right for us to ignore the complications that we have. If you really love marijuana, like you shouldn't ignore these these side things. You know, I'm not a super strict guy. I smoke today. It's not like I'm not like an absent person. Um, but for like routine use in your day to day life, you really need to think about these things. And I think COVID just puts a a huge lens on it because, you know, like we're saying, 
there's a lot of misinformation out there. And what we do know makes it seem like smoking and vaping will just get you COVID. <laughs> yeah. So just uh, my, I don't know how, what you think about this because you were talking about routine use. I mean, there are people that do have to use routinely because they are mm-hmm. on the, the medical cannabis program, right? So I, I just was talking when, when I was talking to my physician originally about this, which rest in peace, he actually just passed away earlier this week. Really good guy. Um, He was actually the first adult that just sat down and spoke with me about medical cannabis. And one of the things he always taught me, which, you know, uh, smoking a joint right now, he would, he's probably shaking his head right now, but um, he always told me, you know, that, that what I should do as, as a routine user um, in the in the cannabis program is find out what edible dose works for me and keep it mm-hmm. consistent. Is that something that you would also recommend like for routine users? Because I guess the mm-hmm. analogy he used, uh, because I was at a time on another, we'll just say another drug, and he kind of just stepped me through the fact that he's mm-hmm. like, you remember you were on this dose and then it stopped working for you for a while and then you were on this dose? Sure. That it's the same. It's he says it's more or less the same. You know, it's a little bit harder in cannabis, but if you can figure out, you know, let's say twenty five milligrams works for you, that's a good place to start. That you actually figured it out because smoking. That's the other thing about smoking is that he, he said like if you're in a lot of pain, smoke because that's instant relief. But the thing about it is, it's not it's not dosed. It's hard to mm. dose. You mm. can't just say I'm going to take a puff, and every time I take a puff, because that's a puff's not a standard unit. So you always sure. recommended standardizing sure. it. Yeah, um, it, it is really important, and you know, if you're going to look at this from a medical perspective, you need a council on smoke reduction, and you need a council on edible usage because it's very nebulous for people. Um, if a patient has never done edibles, then I always make sure to you know. Do the same thing, you know, I'd try five milligrams at first, make sure you give yourself an hour, don't take an extra dose. Just really reasonable advice. Um, when patients tell me that edibles don't work, I kind of try to unpack the reasons why, you know, um, what dose did you take? What have you done in the past? Um, do you feel like there's a reason that it hasn't worked? Because I do get a lot of pushback from people who are routine smokers about using edibles. Um I think your doctor overall is basically, you know, saying the same things I say. I think we're not dealing with something that has a ton of slam dunk science. So reducing your smoke exposure by a little bit, it's important. Um, If you're dealing with a pain related complaint, I usually tell people they need to try something topical just to get something else that they have available. Um, And for everyone, I usually say try to get part of what you need from something that isn't inhaled. Absolutely. That's good words of advice. Good words of advice. Um, so yeah, like I say, we do have a, a, a blog post on that. Um, actually maybe Dr. Lee, is this, is this yours? It looks like it's Dr. Wong. Is that maybe somebody you work with or? Yeah, there were, there have been many, many potential green mind physicians, <laughs> but a lot of people can't get too involved because of their day jobs. So it usually just ends up being me. Um, which hey, is fine. Man, I, hey, you're a you're a workaholic. I get it. I get it. Sorry, I just I wanted to make sure I attributed the the correct art uh, author. Oh yeah, Doctor Wong helps out. He usually um, writes some articles, and then I have a few people helping me out in Oregon too. Cool, cool. All right. Well, Justine, uh, we're hitting the top of the hour. Do you have any other questions for Doctor Lee before we part? 
No, I think this has been awesome, very informative, um, especially in in relation to using COVID and, or sorry, using cannabis and the treatment of COVID and how it's, yeah, in theory it works, but it's not going to be the best. So I'll quit telling people that I smoke enough weed to beat the disease. (laughs) (laughs) You can say it because it's funny. It's just not true. I think there's some very real reasons that people are turning towards cannabis right now because um, in CBD world, the, the clinical evidence we have is strongest for CBD as a treatment for anxiety. So I think people are probably, they probably are getting some benefit from cannabis that you really shouldn't just straight up ignore. Um, but at the same time, you know, take it all with a grain of salt and think about your health always. Absolutely. So, Dr. Lee, before we part, did you have anything else that you'd like you'd like to say? Um, I do not, but I I would like to come back because I get a yeah. lot of good questions with my patients, and we can do like a monthly Q and A situation. It would be fun. Hey, I would love that, and you know, we can even make sure to promote it a little bit better uh, to make sure that like we get some questions, even maybe from our community, because I'm sure. I mean, we oh. actually just started a wellness channel within our Discord. Sure. Um, so, folks, if you want to join our Discord, go to chillinois.net. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, just scroll down in our Discord's there. Dr. Lee's even on there sometimes. I um, am. But, and I love the random questions. Like, the more random the question is, the more I like it. Because there's yeah. probably a clinical answer that I can find. <laughs> yeah, I love that you're as accessible as you are, man. It, it's great. And, you know, just to, to say, you know, clearly... Um, you're always welcome here on the Chillinoid podcast. So just oh, let me know. Um, we'll definitely reach out to you. But you know, if there's something that comes up and you want to reach out to us, I even like the idea, like you say, if you want to do it like bi monthly or whatever. Um, yeah. Yes. Perfect. We can update people and keep definitely. people informed. I'll compile my zanies questions. <laughs> perfect, man. Perfect. That sounds awesome. So awesome. Thank you guys so Thank much. You. I always have so much yeah. fun doing this. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on the Chillinois podcast, everybody. I hope you found this episode uh, substantive and informative. Yeah. Um, Hopefully I did not add to the confusion. Subtract it <laughs> hey, but you know, if you did, you can find Eric, Dr. Eric Lee on uh, greenmindphysicians.com. You can get in contact with him, send him an email. Um, just go to greenmindphysicians.com slash contact. Yeah. And you can send them an email. Um, you can also get your appointments set up, um, you know, from greenmindphysicians.com. And from there, you can access their, it looks like you guys are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been mentioning your Instagram. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I hired marketing people this month, so you know, things are really changing around here. Oh, <laughs> there you go, Dr. Lee. There's I love it. it. Uh, well, cool. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yep. It's always a pleasure. <laughs>